0: Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Uh, Undoubtedly, you are on the edge of your seat wondering where in the Bible are we this morning? I was, in fact, in the beautiful states of Idaho and Virginia this week and did try to send the email, and I got one of those spinning circles that's teasing you that it may just happen, but it never really does, so the information did not quite get uh, sent out. So, two alleviate your anxiety, uh, and to answer the question on everyone's heart and mind this morning, would you turn in God's word with me, right pretty much in the, to the middle of the Bible, to the book of Job. Job comes right before the book of Psalms, and we are looking in Job chapter 2. It's page 417 in your pew Bible, if that's helpful, to you, and our reading this Lord's Day morning will be Job chapter 2, the first 10 verses. Job chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. We'll read the 10 verses. Let me just mention that our special interest this morning is in the words we find in verses 4, 5, and 6 verses 4, 5, and 6. So as we read in Job 2, 1 to 10, uh, please take special notes of the perhaps somewhat curious language we have in those three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6. And so now, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us come under the life-giving authority of God's Word and hear these words as they truly are, not merely the words of any man, but the words of the living God. Let us hear him. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, a man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Amen. Let us pray. Ever-blessed, gracious, and holy God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Make this word fruitful in the lives of your people whom you have gathered here this day, we pray. Make your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, still more beautiful in our eyes and more fully embraced by our faith. And make your name great among us, we beg. For there is nothing that we desire more than the glory of our God. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Job, a book replete with mysterious mysterious reference and mysterious events. And as I suspect we might conclude this morning more than a few words as well, mysterious words. Job has enjoyed a life in the history of art, in the history of literature and poetry, of drama, of cinema, and in pop culture. And if you're ever on social media then you know without a doubt Job's so-called friends continue to live as you see people explaining natural disasters and providential ills and suffering and political shifts and events to one another in such a way that could very easily be lifted from the pages of Job where God is blamed for anything that we think goes wrong, or those who profess Christ are encouraged to recognize the folly in doing so, given how hard life in God's world could be. Even the very mention of Job's friends pulls a feature of Job out that is very familiar in pop culture and in culture generally. We know Job's friends... We know Job's great suffering, but I wonder to what extent we know Job's wife. To be sure, she does enjoy a certain and well-deserved notoriety. But exactly do we understand this introduction to and most compelling and memorable mention of her in Job 2? Job is a book full of, of course, profound, even largely indescribable and unthinkable suffering. Here is the man presented very much as the man representative of mankind caught up in nothing less than a whirlpool of torment. The book of Job sounds in some respects like the books joined to it in this portion of the Old Testament. It sounds a lot like the message of Ecclesiastes. Life is bitter. Time is hostile. Job's friends remind us of the urgency of the book of Proverbs, that you choose your friends carefully, and you adjudicate their counsel with the concerns of wisdom and folly and their fruits in view. yet here is plucky, persistent Job, like the psalmist at his best, and like the song of songs in the heights of ecstasy, praising God in all things. In Job, we can say death is so very big And man seems so very, very small. And we might therefore conclude suffering. And why suffering hits Christians especially is the message of Job, as many have concluded. But in fact, without going into all the detail this morning, it is far more likely the case that the message of Job is not why does God allow suffering, as undeniably important that is to the book and to the story and to its place within all of Holy Scripture. But in fact, the question behind even that question, more deeply rooted than it, is actually the very center question in all of the book of Job, literarily and theologically. And it is the question, where shall wisdom be found. Where shall wisdom be found? And that sets us up for appreciating the spectacle here in Job 2 of this rather curious and certainly memorable conversation between God and the Satan concerning Job and his wife. Let me take this Drama of the opening chapters of Job and reduce it down to the one question we are asking of the text and hearing from it this morning. The one question we want not to miss is this. What exactly, what precisely is Satan's demand when in chapter 2, And verse 4, Satan answers the Lord and says, Well, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, verse 5, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. What is exactly Satan's request here, his demand Well, back in chapter 1, you'll remember perhaps, starting in verse 6, after mention of the profound blessings Job has known from the open hand of his God, there Satan begins to challenge the motives for Job's undeniable piety. In chapter 1, he suggests, well, it's this hedge, this hedge that you, God, have placed around him, this hedge he enjoys. What's the hedge? The hedge is all the blessings you've given, Job, are why he has not fallen prey to cursing you and has walked in piety. Well, who would not walk in piety if they're wonderfully blessed the way Job is? He falls into more money and more prosperity when he stumbles over a rock. You have given him abundance of property. You've given him an abundance of children. These are the things that keep his heart buoyant in the things of the Lord. These are the things that keep him upright. Now, why would Satan conclude that's the case? Well, sadly, because it often is. Sadly, because it often is. You Remember, in what we read in chapter 2, Satan has been making his way up and down the earth, back and forth, across the entirety of the planet. He's been watching people. He's been studying people. That's what prompts God's question. Well, so what do you think of Job? The reason he asked that question is because Satan's been watching people. And chapter 1 sounds like Satan watches people. And that it's sadly the case, too often, that when the blessings go, the piety goes too. The fragility, the vulnerability of our actual confidence in the Lord becomes exposed by suffering and hardship, and we fold like a pack of cards as soon as life gets a bit rough, or sometimes terribly so. Satan, presumably, acts and speaks here from experience. He has seen how fragile, fickle people can be. You can be. I can be. And we must hear ourselves and what Satan expects to be the case. Yeah, you've put a hedge around him, God. No wonder he has persisted in his piety. So, at God's permission, Satan takes all of that away from Job. What did this look like? In verse 13, there was a time, a day, when his sons, his daughters, his many sons, his many daughters, evidence of God's favor upon him in the ordinary form of it. Here they are, these sons and daughters, eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. That's a good older brother offering food and wine to his siblings. So there they are enjoying the older brother's house and there comes a messenger to Job and says, the oxen were plowing, uh, plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them and the Sabaeans, a foreign people, fell upon them and took them and struck them down, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you while he is still speaking, we read in verse 16. Job hasn't had a chance to react to this Horrific, tragic news. There comes another man and says, the fire, not just the fire, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you two times, only one survivor, the one who runs to tell the story. Job still doesn't have a chance to react. In verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there comes another and says, the Chaldeans, another foreign group, formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And now we expect it. I alone have escaped to tell you. It's as though the calamities are as exhaustive as possible while leaving the opportunities for someone to tell how bad it is. Only one escapes to tell you. While he was yet speaking, verse 18, and you think you've had a bad day of bad news, there comes another who says, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. The originating scene of this whole cycle, this whole story, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. There's no point in trying to, to capture what the experience must have been like for Job. At, Unfortunately, sadly, tragically, there are some in the room for whom some of these descriptions resonate a bit too closely or a little too close to home. But I, I struggle to imagine anyone can relate as extensively to Job as we would have to, to, be, to begin to do justice to the degree, the severity, the, the depth of the loss described here in just a few verses. When Job finally has a chance to catch his breath, he uses it to praise his God. He stands up, carries out the ritual of profound mourning, tears his robe, shaves his head, falls on the ground in humility and worships and says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked will I return, the Lord gave, the Lord takes away, blessed, not cursed, blessed be the name of the Lord. At the end of, verse, of chapter 1, in all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's movement one. Job is the center of the story. Job is like Adam in Genesis 1. In the beginning of Genesis 2, Job is our focal point. What's, what is Job's story going to be? And this first whole movement, which has told us the history of humanity in, in one chapter and 22 verses, focused in the horror that confronts one individual within it. Again, the, the man in a whirlpool of torment. All this in one chapter and leaves us at the end with a Job still standing because he is kneeling. And not sinning with his mouth. You'll notice now that what we read in chapter 2 ends the same way. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Suggesting we need to read these together and notice now this second movement in our first 10 verses of chapter 2 are designed to be kind of okay, Satan, didn't work first time now I really understand how to get to Job, and it's not going to be by making the man suffer as Job, merely. Well, then what what will it look like? Chapter 2 opens the same way as chapter 1, verse 6. Satan's second great temptation, his second great challenge and testing of Job's Job's actual motives for uprightness. There is no unbeliever in the world who will assume you have good motives for continuing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's because you think he helps you when you're suffering. This is the whole uh, clinical assumption that God is there as your great crutch in life, to lean on when things are hard. That's the only reason why people believe in this higher being. No, unbelievers will never, will never assume good motives for your perseverance in piety. You must be persevering in piety because you hate people. You hate homosexuals. You hate those who struggle uh, with their gender identity, to use the colloquial expression, you you hate the poor, Uh, you hate people who are not white, you hate people who are, there are always motives assumed when someone remains faithful with whatever the scriptures teach on anything and follow in the way of the Lord. Motives must be askew. Satan's confident if he just finds what the, the actual motive is, he'll expose Job. So chapter two is his new attempt. What is Satan then, for therefore demanding in verse 5? Stretch out your hand, God, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Now, conventionally, the reading of verse 5 is that this is, it is often thought, a reference to Job's life. All right, you made him suffer. Now, if you kill him, Well, that's just exactly it. What, exactly? If you kill him, what, Job won't believe God anymore? The Job we're talking about isn't in the picture anymore. So what what do you mean that this is his life? But this is the conventional reading, that God refuses to allow Satan to kill Job, but allows physical suffering up to a point. But we need to be very careful to notice the idiom in our text that is very deliberately used in a highly literary book, Job, in verse 5. The idiom is not, I'm sorry, some translations do have this, his flesh and bone. It is, in fact, his bone and his flesh, in that order, his bone and his flesh. When we say flesh and bone in English, as some translations put this, what do we mean by that? We mean the body as a whole, right? We're we're really using an expression that captures the whole of a person's flesh and bone. And therefore we mean something like his whole life, his whole person. And that's that's fine as an English idiom, but the order here is is in fact very very deliberate. Not his flesh and bone, but his bone and his flesh. That's a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew way of speaking that routinely refers to some kind of covenantal or kinship relationship. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 13, David instructs Zadok and Abiathar to say to the man of Judah, You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. You are my brothers, we are one, we are kin, you are my bone and my flesh. Well, but since Job's ten children have now all been killed, slaughtered, now that they have all died in chapter 1, what exactly is Satan therefore demanding here in chapter 2? Here as elsewhere, Job is reaching back to Genesis. And drawing us into the world of Genesis, and Genesis into its own world. And just as in Genesis 1, the focal point becomes Adam as the apex point of a creation week who becomes the hinge into chapter 2 and its remarkable drama. Uh, Chapter 2 ends up focusing on Eve as the the center of the action and the drama of the prospects of humanity. So Job 1 now folds into Job 2 to sound a lot like Genesis 2.23 when Adam exclaims upon the presentation of Eve to himself, This, at last, Adam says, is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Referring, of course, to his wife, not to his physical self. This is only one of many ways in which the narrator in Job repeatedly invites us to read Genesis into Job, and perhaps even Job into Genesis And Job 3, after this chapter, will have a systematic reversal of all those acts of creation in Genesis 1, uh, and their sequence and their rhythm will be exactly paralleled as a way of displaying the unraveling of the cosmos. We add to that the feature here of Satan's temptation, of the, as, he said, as he tempted Adam and Eve, the nakedness association with curse— In Genesis 1, naked I came from my mother's womb. The focus on the need throughout this book for seed, for the continuity of life. Satan is here demanding of God. He is demanding Job's wife. He is confident that if he gets to Job's wife, then he gets fully, permanently, and deeply, and finally to Job. It wasn't enough to take Job's children away. It wasn't enough to take Job's health away. It wasn't enough to take his possessions away. What is left? You can kill Job, but Satan knows that's not, in fact, the end of our story. I will really get to Job if I get to him by taking his wife, his bone, and his flesh. But what does Job's wife have to do with his life? The Satan wants his wife, but God prevents that. God prohibits that. He requires that she be preserved. He is there at your disposal, but do not, do not take his life. Well, notice the two ways that Eve was named in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, 7. Adam celebrates her creation from his side, not from the ground as he was made, but from her side. And from his side, this, this woman who would be his glory, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, is constructed like a temple, built like a tabernacle from his side. And when she is fully formed, and then he is awakened and she is presented to him, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Why? He says, why? Because she has come out of him. She has come out of him as one flesh with him. The reality of their intimacy becomes prominent. Something explained later as the cause of their leaving and cleaving when men and women marry each other Uh, means that one cannot be separated fully and truly from the other. There's no deep Cleavage between them, no division, no separation, no ripping apart. They are one flesh, and she is his bone and his flesh, not merely family. Especially as that language becomes thinner and thinner in our time. But she is one with him in truth. At the very least, this is a reminder to us of something the rest of the scriptures make clear. Not only Song of Songs, but other places as well. And that is that the one flesh reality is a signal of the special intimacy between a husband and a wife. It is at least that. But it is not only that. In chapter 3 and verse 20, she's named again not as a replacement name, but as an expansion of the way in which she is his life and the way in which she, in the Apostle Paul's language, is her glory. Because in chapter 3, verse 20, she's named now Eve. Eve, and again we're given the reason why. Because she is, and we can render this in different ways, she is the mother of all living. This naming of Eve signals another way in which she is his bone and his flesh. This naming of Eve signals her procreative glory. Why? Well, in one respect, because in Genesis 3, we're now in the context after the fall. And Adam's survival is now very much a matter of whether he will have seed or not. And that seed that he has, he has with her, and in a unique way, by way of her. She is the mother, in a sense, of all who will live. The mother of the living ones is Eve going forward. That's something especially true in the case of the fall, but not only true in the context of the fall. It was already true that she would be his glory and one with him in figuring, by virtue of their union, the fecundity, the fruitfulness of what they are by God's creation and providence and design. That their love would overflow its bounds in the form of fruitfulness. And children is the ordinary expectation for how glory abounds more and more. Now, in our time, we have those two realities sometimes set opposite each other as though you have to choose between believing that the dignity, the value, the glory of woman is exclusively a matter of how they are one with the man, uh, verbally, visibly, complementarily, accenting in their own way the beauty of the oneness in intimacy terms, or you can believe the Apparent, alleged, opposite, that part of the dignity and the glory of women is that by way of women alone are children born. And friends, you do not need to choose between these two. They both belong to the dignity, the wonder and the glory that is man with woman and woman with man. And to be sure, Especially since the context of the fall, both men and women are occasionally and sadly frustrated in their realization of that created good, an ordinary movement of the human story. And it's important to remember that our value and our meaning is not reducible to whether one personally has had children or will. But even that does not do away with what is ordinarily the case for humanity as such. We do not need to worry about discouraging those who in God's mysterious ways may not have children for a time or forever. We, we do not need to be afraid of crushing them in grief by suggesting with the scriptures that bearing children remains ordinarily a sign of the blessing of the Lord. Instead, we find other ways to say, and don't we also rejoice over the truth that God blesses his faithful people with a variety of other forms of no less valuable but different fruitfulness, which we should recognize as extraordinary but undeniable ways God is bringing himself glory through you and your life. You may desire it to look this way, but in his providence, it may not, at least for now. Isn't it wonderful there are these other ways that desire for fruitfulness to the glory of God can be realized in your life? Throughout the history of the church, this has not been a problem, seeing how all of these things can be true at once. And friends, we need to recover that sense of proportion, or we will miss, among other things, why Job 2 is so explosively powerful in proclaiming the gospel to us. Yeah, the gospel is here in Job 2. And that's, in fact, why there is a Job 2. It proclaims the gospel. Remember Job 1, verse 2. Job is introduced as a man with seven sons and three daughters, accenting the central importance to his story of being able to survive through later generations. Then those ten are killed in chapter one. So now in chapter two, what hope does Job have? The reader is going to think what hope he has will at least involve having his wife as his life with the prospect of more children who might be born, some seed that will come by way of her. When Satan demands his bone and his flesh, when he demands this, he's not demanding Job die. He doesn't want to take his life in the narrow physical sense. He demands his wife. Now listen to verse 4, immediately in front of our verse, and you'll see why Satan is wrong again. Why Satan is wrong again. So, in verse 4, Satan replies to God, By the way, have you seen Job? I know you've been making your way up and down the earth. You tell me you've been here and there. So undoubtedly you've seen him. Haven't you seen how everything you tried, and what the reader knows as chapter 1, everything you tried failed disastrously? Don't you feel embarrassed, Satan? Satan replies in verse 4, Well, what do you expect? What do you expect? He says that with these words, skin for skin. Now how does skin for skin work for, what do you expect? Skin for skin, Satan says, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But if you were to stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, which is his real life, then he would curse you to his face. What is Satan saying? You've taken everything away from him. You've taken everything away except we all know this, don't we, God? You haven't taken his wife. We all know that. Skin for skin. One thing for another. He will give up his very life for that which is his real life. But you haven't pressed him there. You haven't, yet, you haven't yet let me take his wife. You know that if I could get to her I would get to him. That's Satan's argument. Skin for skin. Satan's knowledge of Job directs his assault specifically to what he knows from watching Job. Now, don't miss this, friends. What he knows from watching Job will most likely drive Job to his own death. How? By willingly sacrificing himself. Job, skin for skin, giving his skin for his wife's, giving his life for hers. He has watched Job and he has watched this man love his wife so undeniably. That he knows didn't work to take the children away and he loves his children. But he's seen the man love his wife so well, so conspicuously, that he is now confident. The way to get to Job is to do what I know he would do in love for his wife. Give up his life for hers. I know his love goes that far. And I can do whatever I want to him and it won't work. But I know he loves her to the degree that he would give his life for her, skin for skin. Let me get to her, and he will fall. Skin for skin. Would Satan conclude the same about how you love your wife or husband? Upon close examination... Would he conclude the same? Yeah, I know how to get to him by way of her. I can do whatever I want to him, but it may or may not work. But if I get to her, that's enough of his vulnerability. He'll put his life down to make sure she's all right. It reminds us as well, this expression, skin for skin, of how God placed animal skins around and on the exposed, vulnerable, naked skin of Adam and Eve, figuratively cloaking their one flesh in his own protection. But Satan knows Job is ready to die for her, and that if he touches her unto death, he touches him unto death as well. God prohibits that last step. Killing Job by way of killing his wife is pervertedly what leads uh, what what Satan desires to get to Job. And so when he is refused, you'll notice the irony of what Satan does next. Fine. Fine. Like a discontented toddler or teenager in some cases. Fine. You won't give me what I really want. I'm going to take everything I possibly can to make my point. Skin for skin is what I said would happen. So you're not going to let me have his bone and his flesh? Look at what I do to his skin since we're talking about it. He pervertedly assaults Job's skin with sores, lays siege Still to his wife, but not by killing her, but just as he did with Eve in Eden, by way of her words, in in Job's case, words of cursing, in Eve's case, words of maybe the serpent is right about his evaluation of things. Job is being put in front of us as a new Adam of sorts. His wife as a new Eve in the sense that she is the context for his trial. And what comes from her lips raises the question of now what will come from his. In Genesis 3, of course, What fell on Adam's lips as our covenant head to our great calamity was the fruit of the forbidden apple. Forbidden fruit, at least we should say. The forbidden fruit touched the lips of our first father and we fell with him in doing this. Now we read the story and we wonder what will Job's lips do now when his wife is an occasion most proximate for being in a position to now perhaps wonder maybe all those friends and she are right. And so in verse 10 we read, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive disaster, is a better rendering. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, it would be easy, I think, for us to say, as I hope we are all already thinking, isn't Job an amazing figure of the Lord Jesus Christ? But let me ask us to take a step back behind even that and say instead, in light of how Scripture works, that there is no Job like this unless there is already a Christ like that. That Job's meaning derives already from the meaning of God's works in history, purpose in his Son. All that is to say, it's not as though when Jesus comes on the scene in the first century and, in the words of the apostolic gospel, gives his life for his bride, that he comes into a world where Job is in the historical background and we think, wow, isn't that coincidental? Because Job had to do that way back then. Isn't that something that now Jesus has to do it too? That's a really happy coincidence. Quite the opposite. The only reason Job, as God's inerrant, inspired, providentially given word, reads like that is because from the outset, the gospel was going to be and always has been the good news. God's love for his people looks like that. We don't don't think only then about how Job leads us to a New Testament gospel. Like the apostles themselves in the New Testament, we preach the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures as such. Job is not merely pointing forward to Jesus. Isn't it wonderful I was doing that? Job is already preaching Jesus. And the Old Testament saints, our forefathers in the faith, needed to hear from what is being said about Job. Here is one who is a lot like Adam, but with a very different end of the story. Job was supp- Adam, Adam was supposed to put his life on the line to protect his Eve. His was the self-sacrifice expected in the cool of the day when the Lord approached in, co- in covenant judgment. His responsibility was to give his life for Eve. Instead, he takes from the forbidden fruit, he falls with her. This Adam is not like the other. This Adam, in the moment of trial, is, Satan knows, very ready to lose everything, even her, for his God. And of course as God in his providence and the giving of his word has re-inscribed the story of his son and his love for sinners in that son in the story of Adam and the story of Job as he did in the story of Abraham willing to give his son Isaac as he does in the story of David as he does in the story of Solomon as he does in the story of Isaiah and Jeremiah and on and on we could go he has re-inscribed this story over and over and over again so we will not miss this drumbeat message all the way through. The love of Christ for his church goes just that far and runs just that deep that the Lord does not merely love you the way modern people tend to mean when they say they love somebody. This one Sees you, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as his very bone and flesh, and gave His life in death for His church. So that in John's gospel, among the beautiful ways it preaches the gospel, is that it tells us, as the church fathers, very early on, all apparently recognize without difficulty, that when on his cross from his side, blood and water flowed. This was our second and last and true Adam, from whose side was built the church, his bride, his body, his glory, who lives by the blood and water that flow from the side of one who gave his life. For his bride, who got in the way between between the certainty of final judgment and his beloved bride, to assume it for himself, on his skin, down to his bones to the deepest recesses of who he is as the God-man, who in Isaiah's language became sin for us. Paul in 2 Corinthians, so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Job is a figure of Christ, of Christ's own inscription, who loved his wife to death, Skin for skin, in devotion to his bone and flesh, and precisely because of that, this bride, this body, this bone and flesh of the incarnate God, has this well-founded hope. Yet one day, when grace gives way to glory, in the final imagery of the Book of Revelation she will be glorified and rendered finally beautiful as the bride of the Lamb who is called by that name precisely because he sacrificed himself and died for her. And when she is resplendent in glory, that glory which she shines with will be the glory of his love for her on display. And it's not merely that Job will be vindicated. It's that every time you have had to do the hard thing and walk in faith and not by sight and love when it's difficult and apparently lose everything along the way, friends, you too will be vindicated in the glory that is certainly and sure to be yours on a final day when we are together the glory of the Lamb. May God hasten that day and strengthen us for all we are called to be and to do in prospect of it. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we, we fail for fitting words, even to trace out the marvel of your infinite love for most unworthy people, such as we all are. Truly, the gospel is the good word of divine mercy extended to undeserving sinners, and yet in those tracings we, we fall in wonder and praise over this repeatedly clear truth you have given us in your word and works. And that is that you are the God who saves sinners. And you do so in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom love is put fully on display as sacrifice who has in truth given his life for his life, his bone and his flesh. Those whom you have sovereignly and lovingly made one with him. Our Father, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts in affection for the Christ of this gospel. And also enlarge our hearts in affection and deepen them in wisdom as we endeavor by your great grace to walk in faithfulness to this gospel in a way that brings praise to Christ, whether as husbands or as wives, as sons and daughters, as friends to one another, as fathers and as mothers, as those who hope one day to be husbands, wives, fathers and mothers, May we now and not only then walk in faithfulness, walk in the devotion that sets Christ apart as true and exclusive Lord in our hearts because of the great love he has shown to us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.